The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. So we've just read from the book of Ezekiel. And upon reading this passage, it makes me think about how important branding is, how important representing uh, yourself, your company, your community is through not only a good logo, a good mission statement, your products. I mean, even if you have no name as your brand, it's still incredibly recognizable. Bright yellow, simple black text. I mean, it can't get much more vivid than that. And it goes beyond just products. I remember when I was in school playing for sports teams or or going to science events, you would show up and the teachers and the coaches would tell you to be on your best behavior because you are representing the school while you are here. Of course, you're wearing either your uniform, the logo, and so when people see how, as kids, we are conducting ourselves, they would then make a judgment on the school and the kinds of educational institution it was. And so it was important that as we represented the school that we were on our best behavior. And so it's this idea that we carry into this text in Ezekiel. A bit of context first, though. The book of Ezekiel is divided into two sections. The first uh, 35 chapters are known as the Oracle of Judgment. Ezekiel is writing to the Jewish people in exile. They've been taken into slavery by Babylon. They've been removed from their homelands. And Ezekiel is writing to them the words of God as to why this has happened. Because after a few years, you might begin to forget why something terrible has happened, the reasons for it. So Ezekiel takes the time to receive these words from God and remind them, this is why you're in Babylon. This is why you have been taken out of the promised land. It's because you broke the covenant relationship with God. But we come into the text at what is known as the Oracle of Restoration, this promise, this looking ahead for this people of exile, the hope that God is going to lay on them. For after reminding them of why they are not in their own land, Ezekiel relays to them comfort that God will renew them as a people, restore them to the land, bring them home. And the land takes up a large focus of this passage. For it begins by talking about the blood that has been shed on the land. The land has been defiled. This language repeats time and time again throughout the whole book. Ezekiel likens it to the uncleanness of a woman, or her monthly uncleanness. And now we might find this link to menstruation a little offensive because it's really not such a bad thing. It's normal biology. It shouldn't really be a taboo subject or something that makes our skin crawl when we hear about it. It's normal. But in their context, coming out of the Levitical law system, menstruation was unclean. And a woman who was in that monthly period of uncleanness, anything she touched, anything she interacted with also became unclean. So the image that Ezekiel is trying to put forward is the fact that Israel behaved in such a way that everything they interacted with was unclean. Everything that they did and touched became separated from God 
twisted, distorted, drawn away from the presence of God and his intention for them in this land. Howard Snyder writes about the four relationships that sin broke. He calls it the ecology of sin. He says that in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve took the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they broke four relationships. Their relationship with God, our relationships with ourselves, with each other in community, and finally with the land itself. For we know that as the result of sin, God cursed the land, that it would not be easy to work, it would not be easy to grow food and to live on. And so Israel, through their bloodshed, through their idolatry, through their worship of false gods and abandoning everything good that God stood for, the land itself had become corrupted. It was not just the people in the community. And so God, for the sake of Israel, for the sake of the land itself, had to bring them out into exile, just as he promised. But he promises to bring them back. He says, therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name. He's going to bring them back into the land, this people of God that, if we go through the Old Testament time and time again, turned their backs on him, worshipped other gods, did like the other nations, forgot about him. He's going to bring them back to this land, a people so ungrateful for his grace and forgiveness but he's going to take them back. Why? It's not for their sake, but it's for God's sake. God does a lot of things for his sake. If we look back in Exodus, one of the first times we see God sparing Israel for his sake, we see the story of Moses in the golden calf, where shortly after being brought out of Egypt, the people of God very quickly forgot about God forgetting about the ten plagues, who carried them through the Red Sea, they decided that they needed a god to follow that they could see. So they made a golden calf, and they worshipped that. And God was so angry, he says to Moses, that I am going to destroy them. But Moses implores on behalf of Israel to God, and says, don't, don't do it. What would the other nations say if they heard the story of how the God of Israel, the God of the Hebrews, brought them out of Egypt, defeated all the gods of Egypt, defeated Pharaoh's army, split the Red Sea, carried them into the desert just to kill them? That makes no sense. That's not who you are, God, Moses says. And so God relents from his destruction. And so now God is concerned with his relationship with Israel and what that says to the other nations. For the Jewish people are scattered throughout the world, and for the most part, people only know God of Israel. They only know Yahweh through the people of Israel. And so, people might have interacted with the Jews and said, your God promised that you would stay in your land, and he gave you Canaan, he drove out all the people before you, but now, now you're not there. And they might come to one of two conclusions, either that God was not strong enough to defend his people. Because when nations went to war against each other in those days, it was not just nation against nation, but it was God against God. And so they may have looked and said, well, the Babylonian God, Marduk, he's stronger than Yahweh. 
Or perhaps even worse, they might have looked and said, your God has abandoned you. The reason that you did not win, the reason that you've been taken into exile by Babylon is because your God is not strong enough. And so, God will not let that stand. Because God is certainly stronger than any other God that could possibly exist in the whole of the universe. And he also loves his people. He is a God of love. He's a God of justice, which is why they are in exile, but as a God of love and forgiveness and compassion, he will forgive them and bring them back. But this is not just a blank check of forgiveness that God is writing. Note, when he brings Israel back, he still expects them to behave in a right way. The forgiveness of God is not permission to do what we want, trusting that grace will always be given. That certainly cheapens the forgiveness and the grace. But God recognizes that it is not possible for the Israelites to do this on their own. That's basically the story of the whole Old Testament, is that when we try and go our own way, when we try and serve God in our own strength, we inevitably fall short. And so God says, they need a new spirit. They need a new spirit in order to live into obedience, to follow the law, to obey, and so they can live in the land and enjoy it. Before they can receive this new spirit, they need to be cleansed. God says in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. This brings us the image of the day of atonement, that once a year when the priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, and sprinkle the, the blood of the Lamb of the Atonement on the Ark for the forgiveness of everyone. God is going to cleanse them of all their sins, perfectly atone for them from their impurities, from their idols. And he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. A heart of stone is one that is stubborn, unyielding, it's inorganic. It is not alive. It does not respond to touch, to emotion, to thought, to word. So God is going to take that heart out and put a new heart of flesh, one that is living, dynamic. For the heart is the seat of the will. It, from all behavior, flows out of the heart. And the desire to do good or evil is found in that locus. And so God will put a new heart but we still need more than just a new heart. We need a new spirit. We need God's spirit. For the spirit is necessary, for we cannot hope, even with this new heart, to be obedient on our own. Because for the people of Israel, the promise of life, the promise of staying in the land, was contingent on their obedience. You have to forgive me, my tablet is frozen up, and I don't know where my notes are going. There we go. And what is important is that this spirit, the spirit that God will put in you, in your midst, it's one of the shortcomings of the English language is that we don't have a, a second plural word. We use you for both first singular and first plural. Albeit we could simply just translate our Bible as I will put a spirit in the midst of y'all. Because... God's spirit is a communal thing. 
It's something that exists for the purpose of bringing us together. This is not about individual personal restoration. In fact, the whole of Scripture points to the idea that it is about community, which is why we are brought together, which is why we worship together in person and online. Because the Spirit of God is intensely communal. And God knows that in order for the people of Israel, for the Jews, and for us even in this day to succeed in being obedient and living in a way that glorifies God's name, that tells people that our God is good and just and loving, it has to be done together. And so the Spirit brings us together in that way. In the Spirit of God, it confirms that grace and forgiveness in our hearts. It confirms God's truth. Where Paul writes in Ephesians 1.14 of the Holy Spirit and says that the Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's possession, which is us, to the praise of his glory. Just as the Spirit would come onto these people of Israel in exile and assure them that God is going to bring them back into the land, that God has forgiven them, so too does the Holy Spirit assure us that we are forgiven through Jesus Christ that we have been cleansed. And the Spirit brings about unity through this forgiveness. For earlier in Ezekiel, chapter 11, verse 19, he speaks of giving Israel an undivided heart. This new new heart, the Spirit in the midst of y'all, is going to confirm God's grace in our hearts. But then God still needs to bring us back into this land still needs to bring us into this new creation. This land that Israel left behind was despoiled by armies, trampled, pillaged, plundered. It had not been cared for well by them and was falling into disarray. So the damages of sin, as Snyder says, this ecology of sin that affects everything, then we need an ecology of grace. For the land is broken, but God will restore it. God says, I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the fields so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. The land needs to be healed. The land itself needs to be restored so that we can have full flourishing in this life. Because what good would it do for God to redeem Israel back to their land for them to just starve and die of famine? That would not do well for God's brand. And so God brings forth new life. God sustains his creation. And part of the obedience then is to steward and care for the land. Because in stewarding and caring for the land, we not only supply enough for ourselves, we care for the poor, for the oppressed, for the marginalized. As people of grace, we are called to participate in God's mission of restoring the health and integrity of all of creation so that everything comes under this umbrella of grace, that everything can flourish and God can be glorified. Because as people of God, it is difficult to bring true and full glory to God if we only look after one or two of those broken relationships if we only look after our broken relationship with God or each other or ourselves or creation, we need it all. We need to rely on that spirit in our midst, on that new heart 
to help us restore these broken relationships and live in such a way that God's name is lifted up among our neighbors. It seems strange then that this, this chapter would end on shame. He continues in verse 31 that you will remember your evil ways and your wicked deeds and you will loathe yourselves and your sin and your detestable practices. Self-loathing after this story of new hearts and of restored land, it seems odd, but it's to remind us that we screwed up majorly and that this new heart is not one that is going to put us perhaps to shame, but it is going to make us hate sin with the intensity that God does, that we will despise our past practices and be pushed on to living well. It brings us through remembrance of our sins to a more comprehensive understanding of just how great God's grace is. Lest we come into new life thinking that we had any hand in our salvation, any hand in our restoration. And so this new spirit, this new spirit calls us to live in a manner that glorifies God's name. For we have a particular brand, right? We are called Christians, which the followers of Jesus were first called in the city of Antioch, meaning little Christ's. We are the ones that represent Jesus here. We are the people that, that our neighbors see. Just like as kids representing our school at events, when people look to us, they make a judgment about who God is. And if we try and do it on our own strength, with our hearts of stone, we're not going to do a very good job representing him. So I would invite you, as people of God, to think about the new heart that you already have in you, the spirit that is in the midst of y'all today, and to think about the four relationships that have been broken with God, each other, ourselves, and creation, and how God today is calling you to participate in the restoration that he is already doing so that his name above all may be lifted high. Let us come together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that despite our stubbornness, despite our refusal to live fully after you in obedience and in care for how we represent your name, that you redeem us. That we who have exiled ourselves through sin have been redeemed by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, sprinkled clean by the blood of the covenant that he shed for us on the cross. God Almighty, make the presence of your spirit that is already in the midst of us more known. Encourage us as we go out this week to look for ways that we can best represent you and the restorative work that you are doing. God Almighty, we do this not for our own glory, but so that your name might be lifted up among the nations. Amen.